Our reading this morning can be found on page 979, and it's Matthew, at chapter 13, uh, verses 24 through to 43. Jesus told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. When the wheat sprouted and formed ears, then the weeds also appeared. The owner's servants came to him and said, Sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where then did the weeds come from? An enemy did this, he replied. The servants asked him, Do you want us to go and pull them up? No, he answered, because while you are pulling the weeds, you may root up the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. At that time, I will tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds and tie them in bundles to be burned. Then gather the wheat and bring it into my barn. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed which a man took and planted in his field. Though it is the smallest of all your seeds, yet when it grows, it is the largest of the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and perch in its branches. He told them still another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into a large amount of flour until it worked all through the dough. Jesus spoke all these things to the crowd in parables. He did not say anything to them without using a parable. So was fulfilled what was spoken through the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things hidden since the creation of the world. Then he left the crowd and went into the house. His disciples came to him and said, Explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field. He answered, The one who sowed this good seed is the Son of Man. The field is the world, and the good seed stands for the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sows them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the harvesters are angels. As the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, So it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will weed out his kingdom, everything that causes sin and all who do evil. They will throw them into the fiery furnace, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears, let him hear. This is God's word. Matt, thank you. Let me have my welcome. My name's uh, Matt Fuller. Good to uh, see you this morning. Let me uh, lead us in prayer as we begin. Our Father, your word is truth and how we need it. These are in many ways wonderful, in other ways awkward things for us to hear this morning. So we thank you that you're a God who speaks truth, and we need it to shape us. We pray that you you do that by your spirit this morning. Shape us to think more like you, and live in response to that, we pray. Amen. 
I was away most of this week at a minister's conference uh, in the middle of the country and lots of conversation, encouraging time broadly with uh, lots of other ministers. I was talking to a couple uh, who are basically based in Sheffield and uh, they'd done something recently. They'd gone and asked thousands of people actually in, uh, in the town city of Sheffield, uh, if you could ask God one big question, what would it be? And they got all variety of answers. But the thing that struck them more than anything of whatever 4,000 answers they got just short of a third of the people said, if they could ask God one question, it would be, if you're God, why do you allow so much evil and suffering in the world? That would be it. I don't know if that's your question. But uh, if that's representative and that's a larger uh, group of people than are taken most opinion polls, of course, then about a third of the country, if they could ask God one thing, why evil, why suffering? Why so much? If God exists, why is there so much, well, let's narrow it, evil in the world? Why is there so much evil? God, why do you allow Muammar Gaddafi to rule his country for so long as stories tumble out about uh, mass executions and mass graves, of a mass rape of women in whole towns as punishment for... um, Uh, rebelling against his rule of he and his wife literally boiling alive some of their servants who disappointed them. Why would you allow that, Lord, to happen just in your world or closer to home? Why would you allow a a, a vicious, beastly man, a Vincent Tabak, to murder Joe Yates in some sick sexual fantasy? Why would you allow that to take place in your world? Or even Christians... Okay, God, if if you're there, your own people, why do they suffer so much at the hands of the wicked, the evil? If you follow much of what's going on in in, uh, Robert Mugabe, Zimbabwe at the moment, there's a breakaway church being set up, a state-backed Mugabe church. And if you don't join that, you're persecuted. So uh, early in the year, Jessica Mandea, uh, a leading figure in the Harari diocese, murdered for refusing to join the breakaway church. This Sunday, it's estimated there will be well over uh, 300 churches closed in the Harare region by police using tear gas and batons to prevent the Christians, thousands of Christians, meeting in freedom like we do. God, why do you let that happen to your people? Why would you allow such a thing, even today, to take place? Why? Well, Jesus tells this parable and says, it will always be that way until I return. Just to be clear, just so our expectations are in place, it will always be that way until Jesus Christ returns. There will always be the wicked living in this world alongside those who are God's people. It will always be that way. Now, we started looking at this uh, chapter last week, Matthew 13. We said it's really, it's all about parables. That's a fairly obvious point. Uh, we said, do you remember back in um, uh, verses 11 to 13 in particular, the parables of Jesus are like a sieve, like a big sieve. Everyone goes in and he sieves and they divide people. Uh, the dross falls away and what's left, those are the people who understand the parables are designed to divide. Some people will hear them and say, I haven't got a clue what that's about. Others will hear them and say, Now, that's really encouraging. I get that. 
They're meant to do both those things. They're meant to harden the hearts of some who don't know, don't want to come to Jesus Christ, who are stubborn, but to others who want to follow him. They'll be helpful, encouraging. And in particular, the, the parables are all pointing in the one direction of chapter 13, which is that his kingdom, the kingdom of Jesus Christ, is unstoppable. It may seem small, it may seem fragile, it may seem feeble, it may seem under attack, but it is unstoppable. And eventually that will become obvious at the end of time when he returns. But you see, even in this story, I don't know if you noticed, we're, we're not going to look at everything that was read today. Actually, next week, I want to come back and look at the chapter overall, sort of drawing out the, the common ideas of the whole chapter. So we're going to miss out the, uh, the bit in the middle, uh, the mustard seed, the yeast. We'll come back to them next week. We're just going to look at this parable of the weeds today. And we can see even in this parable, there's a division. So when Jesus tells it, verse 24, Jesus tells them, the crowd, another parable, and off he goes. But when it comes to the explanation, verse 36, he left the crowd, went into his house. His disciples came to him and said, in 21st century, you what? <laughs> what was all that about? We don't understand at all. And the parables have that sense. Those who want to understand, those who pursue Jesus to understand, will, will, they'll understand it. Others will hear and think and walk away. They're meant to have that impact. Let's look at this, uh, this parable then, the parable of the weeds. That's the title that Jesus' disciples give it in um, uh, verse 36. What's going on with the weeds? Explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field. Because that's the main issue going on here. As, uh, we'll see when we unpack it. The main issue is why does God allow weeds in his world? Evil, as we'll see. In his world. That's the main issue of the whole parable. Now, the context, just to, to uh, remind you, the followers of Jesus are excited. Uh, the king, he's proclaimed himself the king. Uh, God's king, God's Messiah, has arrived on the scene. And many then expecting, brilliant, everything is going to be well now. Let's, uh, let's drive out the Romans. Let's establish a military kingdom. Let's have a nice, pure Jewish society here, a nice, pure uh, kingdom of God. Uh, here and now, Jesus. And he tells this parable to say, no, it's not going to be like that. Not yet. In this life, in this age, it'll always be confusing. There'll always be good and wicked. There'll always be my people and those who oppose. There'll always be those things in this age. Don't be surprised by that. So Jesus, in one sense, tells this parable to help us get our expectations straight of what life in this world is like. Don't expect purity here and now. Don't expect heaven on earth. It won't be that. Expect weeds. Endure the weeds. Okay, I think it breaks down uh, three main things. Uh, Jesus says there are two crops planted in the world. Jesus patiently allows both to grow. But third, there's a separation when he returns. Okay, there's two crops. Jesus allows both to grow, but they will be separated. Let's work through it. First day, verses 24 to 26, there are two crops planted in the world. Back in the parable. Verse 24. Jesus told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds amongst the wheat and went away. When the wheat sprouted and formed ears, then the weeds also appeared. 
Now, this is all a bit mean, isn't it? Agricultural sabotage uh, going on. It's, uh, that's the point of the story. Someone deliberately hostile to this farmer sets out to destroy or ruin uh, his crop. And so plants weeds. Now, weeds is okay as a translation. We get weeds. And, um, you know, city center dwellers, not many of us are horticulturally or agriculturally mannered or, um, or indeed uh, inclined. But... Um, uh, weed is okay, but technically, this is new for me, technically I learned this week, the word translated weeds is bearded darnel. Okay, you're all as clueless as I am. What that is, it's a crop then that looks a lot like wheat. So Jesus is saying two crops are planted, and as the parable makes clear, verse 26, it's only when the ears of the wheat appear that you know the difference. So two crops are planted, and at first they grow up, and you cannot tell the difference. That's the point of this bearded darnel, is technically what it is. It only becomes distinguishable over time. Okay. Now, the translation, where Jesus very helpfully, otherwise we'd be stumbling around all over the place, tells us precisely what he means in verse 36. Here's the interpretation. So the farmer, that's him, Jesus, his favorite title, son of man. The field, that is the world, verse 38. Not talking about the church, but the world. The enemy, the enemy is, verse 39, the devil. So you've got two planters, Jesus and the devil, planting in this world. Now, if you've been here over the last few weeks, last month, as we've looked at Matthew's gospel, you just can't get away from the fact. Jesus says, as well as me, God who exists as Father, Son, and Spirit, there is a uh, personal, malevolent, supernatural being called the devil. And I'm afraid you just can't get away from that. There's a problem with Jesus. He says lots of nice things that people find encouraging and memorable, particularly in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew's Gospel. People love what Jesus says, but he does keep on insisting that there is a devil. And so you either accept the lot or you dismiss him entirely as a loon. But Jesus insists, look, Christianity, it's a supernatural religion. If you accept Jesus, you have to accept that. We've said more on that before, but let me push, you just have to run with him on that. So he says, okay, there are two planters, and they sow two seeds. What are they? Verse 38. Well, the good seed, that's the sons of the kingdom. Okay, that's uh, very clear and very helpful. The weeds, the weeds, verse 38, are the sons of the evil one, unbelievers. So Jesus here is, I'm afraid, shockingly blunt. He says, look, in the world it's, it's fairly black and white. There are believers, sons of the kingdom, unbelievers, sons of the devil. There are, there's wheat, there are weeds. There are Christians and there are not. And there are only two camps. And you either belong to Jesus and side with him, or you belong to the devil and side with him. You do see that that's him saying that, verse 38, 39. He's just black and white here. 
And of course, many are outraged by these sort of comments that Jesus makes. What are you talking about? I don't follow the devil. I've never signed up to follow the devil. I don't believe there is a devil. What do you mean I'm following the devil? Jesus, you're either aligned with one or another. You may not quite realize that, but this world is black and white. It's binary. I remember years ago being very helped. A man called Lorraine Bettner, a man, and um, he comes up with this very helpful illustration of a pirate ship. So take yourself back to uh, um, 18th century or something like that, and uh, uh, there's a pirate ship, and uh, there's a very lovely cook on the pirate ship, Billy the cook. And Billy is a lovely man. He uh, cooks wonderful meals on this pirate ship, and um, if the soldiers ever need anything, he darns their socks. He's a very nice man. He, repair, he paints the boat in lovely colors, if you can have a nice color pirate ship. Everyone likes Billy. Billy is lovely. Uh, one day, uh, the pirate ship is captured by the Royal Navy. Uh, let's call it that uh, in the 18th century. It's captured, and uh, all the pirates are s- slammed into prison, Billy included. And Billy says, but I'm the nice one. I do nice things. I cook nice meals. I darn people's socks. I'm a nice guy. To which the Navy replies, but you're on the wrong side. You have aligned yourself with those who kill and steal treasure, etc. You, you, you're okay relative to the murderer. You're not as bad as Captain Hook. But you're on the wrong side nonetheless. And so Jesus would say to many in the first century, many in our world today, do you realize there are only two sides? And naturally, instinctively, humanity aligns itself with the devil. Not a conscious decision. May well be many of us will be much more moral people than the wicked of this world. But by the fact that we sin, the fact that we are selfish, the fact that we reject God and say we don't want to be on your, t- we don't want to follow you, God. We want independence from you. We've aligned ourselves with the devil. It's, I know it's black and white, but Jesus says it is that way. You either follow the living God or you don't, which means you've aligned yourself with Satan. You belong to his ship, his team. It's deeply unflattering. I Make no mistake, the Bible recognizes there are different levels of evil. Of course it does. Not everyone is as evil as a Gaddafi or a Robert Mugabe. But if we've rejected God, we've aligned ourselves with Satan. There are two crops, and only two crops in the world. Those who follow Jesus Christ and those who don't. Only two crops, says Jesus. Of course, the scary thing, uh, up until verse 26, people don't realize. Before the ears of the uh, wheat sprout, people don't realize these two crops, as the point of this metaphor, the two crops, they're the same. They look the same while they're young. And uh, there'll be a period when people delude themselves, when many assume that... Actually, they're on God's side when they're not. But eventually, it'll be obvious. There are only two crops planted in the world, says Jesus. Second thing he says, really, 27 to 29, Jesus allows both to grow together. He allows both to grow along together. So verse 27, the owner's servants came to him and said, Sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where then did the weeds come from? An enemy did this, he replied. 
The servants asked him, Ah, do you want us to go and pull them up? No, he answered, because while you're pulling the weeds, you may root up the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. Now, let me make a minor point before the major one here. The minor point. Here in this parable, the farmer's servants come to him and say, Should we go and take them out? Let's take out the evil. Come on, let's bring it on. Um, First of all, they say, what what is going on here? We're a bit confused about what's going on. And I think here in this parable, they're meant to be representing the the disciples, the servants of the the farmer come to him. Essentially, that's what's going on here in, in Matthew's gospel at this stage. Disciples are asking, what is going on? I mean, a couple of chapters earlier, John, John, um, John the Baptist has said to Jesus, what is going on? Why aren't you fighting? Why aren't you destroying evil now? What's the delay all about? People are coming to Jesus and say, what is going on? This is a minor point before we move on, but can I just suggest that's an entirely appropriate response for believers to do? When you look around this world to say, Lord, what is going on? Why? How long? Why would you allow a Gaddafi to treat his people so cruelly? Why would you allow a Vincent Tabak to, to murder people freely? Why would you allow the Christians of Zimbabwe to be persecuted? Why? How, how long is this going to go on for, Lord? Why is this happening? That's what they do in the parable, and I think that's okay. When we're bewildered by the evil in this world, when we're confused by the suffering, perhaps particularly the suffering of Christians, it's entirely appropriate to go back to Jesus and say, what, what is going on? And, as happens here, to be shaped by him, to be shaped by his teaching on what we should expect. I mean, it's the point of the whole parable in a sense. But here, just in the middle of it, they come back to the farmer and say, what? Why? Why the evil? And he says, let me explain. Now, we need that frequently, those of us who are Christians, to come back and say, why? And hear him explain, hear him shape our thinking. And that's what's going on. But the main point, the main point uh, here is that Jesus has, well, verses, verses 28, 29, Jesus has ordained a deliberate delay. So verse 29, should we go and pull up the roots, the, uh, the weeds? No, verse 29 Because while you're pulling the weeds, you may root up the wheat with them. Now, that particular part of the parable, if you pull up the weeds, you get the wheat pulled up as well. Jesus, to be honest, he doesn't interpret that particular point. So even as I suggest what he means, I'm suggesting it. He doesn't interpret it. So this is Matt Fuller just saying at this point. But it seems to me, as I read this parable, Jesus is saying, look, any attempt to to separate who are his people from those who are not in this life, we'll get it wrong. We're not perfect. We don't see everything as God sees. Only Jesus Christ is the perfect judge. You have to leave that to him. So don't try and do that here and now. Not violently, certainly. Don't try and separate completely God's people from those who are not Personally, I'm very glad that no one tried to separate the weeds from the wheat before the 12th of April, 1993. That's when I became a Christian. And if anyone had 
tried, if anyone had said, oh, what is Matt Fuller before that date? Wheat, weed. I'd have been very much a weed in most senses, but uh, certainly in the sense of the parable. At that stage of my life, I was living obviously immorally, obviously unkindly. It was obvious. If you'd have separated before that date, I'd have been a weed. So I'm very grateful that this separation didn't happen then, before then. I think Jesus is making that point. Don't, don't rule too hard on that. Let me do that in the future. Be, be slow to make those judgments, absolutely. Take advantage of the delay, will be one application. Jesus has delayed his return, and if any of you are in uncertainty, hold on a minute, which farmer do I belong to? Well, throw yourself on the mercy of Jesus Christ. Take advantage of the delay before he does return. I think the, the main point he's making here to, uh, to the disciples and the Christians is, look, some people want heaven on earth. Some people want absolute moral purity and certainty now, and it won't happen. You won't get that in this life. So it's probably no good trying to separate yourself off into an Amish community. You can't, you can't separate yourself perfectly from the world. You won't get that right. Some Christians will will be a little triumphalist in this world. Right, the, the church, it's gathering pace, and we're at the tipping point of history, and in 50 years, Christianity will dominate this, the United Kingdom once again. Yeah, really? I'm not so certain, given this parable. One day we'll conquer this nation for Christ. Really? Be very slow to make those sort of statements. Whenever the church has tried to become the politicians, it's always gone badly in history. Be careful. Be careful of trying to do that. So don't get carried away. But don't be discouraged. Jesus has planned his delay. It's deliberate. So one, take advantage of it if you've never done so. Two, be realistic. There will be evil in this world. But three, be encouraged. It's not forever. Let's get on to that. So the third thing. There are two crops planted in the world. Jesus patiently allows both to grow. But third, there is a separation when he returns. Verse 30 in the parable. Let both grow together until the harvest. At that time, I'll tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds and tie them in bundles to be burned, then gather the wheat and bring it into my barn. There's a great divide at the end of history. Let me read you. Verses 40 and 42, they require little comment when Jesus interprets what that means. Verses 40, 42. As the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. They will throw them into the fiery furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears, let him hear. Miserable. Verse 42, miserable. I mean, Jesus doesn't use the word here, but he's obviously talking about hell. Actually, he does, he's not shy of using that word. Eight times in Matthew's gospel, Jesus says, you don't want to go to hell. 
three times actually. It's in the Sermon of the Mount, Sermon on the Mount, the nice part of Jesus' teaching. You cannot escape the fact that Jesus taught this repeatedly, deliberately. This is not a construct, a sort of medieval loony fantasy as people got carried away. The fact that there's a doctrine of everlasting torment in a place called hell, Jesus is responsible for that. He's the one who taught it more, more clearly than anyone else. Six times in this gospel alone, he describes it as a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, of course, with, as with every judgment, it's wonderful and miserable. It's wonderful because, well, in the future, verse 41, everything that causes sin and all who do evil will be removed. And if you're not bound up with the weeds, that is very wonderful. What says here, you get the, the modern dilemma over believing in something like hell. People want there to be justice, but they don't want there to be judgment upon themselves. So we want to live in a world without evil. We want verse 41. We want there to be a place where there's um, uh, no evil and no sin. We all want that. I mean, people lavish enormous sums of money to try and ensure that as they protect themselves with secure houses, with the best burglar alarms and secure cars, with the best crash devices and secure marriages, with the best prenuptial agreements. They try to protect themselves in everything they possibly can. People want a world where they can rub out evil and rub out any pain. Of course, we want that. And yet Jesus says, you don't get that without there being a final judgment. Of course, you ask people just generally in the street, do you want there to be a world of justice? Of course. Of course people want the, the profoundly wicked of the world to be punished. I was reading again this week of Kim Jong-il and uh, the fortune he spends flying in foods from around the world, caviar from Iran, pork from Denmark, sushi from Japan, because he must have the best of everything while his people are starving. And that is profoundly wicked, and we want that judged. And Jesus, you don't get that without there being this final division. So judgment, it gives us many of the things we long for, all of us. Because what we don't like is that God decides. We'd quite happily be their justice if we were the ones who, yeah, him in, him out. We'd, I'm in, obviously. What we don't like is the fact that God decides. And he says, naturally, instinctively, you're all aligned over here with the enemy. We don't like that. That's the most unpopular thing, of course, of this teaching. Naturally, we all deserve to be judged. Now, I know we don't like that. But actually, what would you do? Would you really, on that day, stand before the living God and say, there's no evil in me, I never did anything wrong in my life. No one's going to stand and do that. Of course, we'll all say, we weren't that bad. And he will say, you're on the wrong side, naturally. You aligned yourself, not with me. I don't know if anyone's been to the Tate um, Britain recently. They've got an exhibition on there, the paintings of John Martin. So the, uh, the, the exhibition is called Apocalypse. 
John Martin, 19th century, very populist uh, painter, uh, poo-pooed in his time, because he painted these enormous canvases. You can go and see them until January. Enorm- five metres, six metres by four metres. They are vast. Most of the front of the, uh, the church here. Vast depictions of heaven and hell. And you wonder, it is striking. And of course, the Tate says, don't, 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 don't take it too seriously. I mean, afterwards, you can go to the shop and buy a, the Day of His Wrath tea towel. Just, you, you know, you don't take it too seriously. I mean, let's laugh about these things afterwards and end of the world scone or something like that. You know. <laughs> but it is, of course, you look at these things, and all he's done is taken pictures that Jesus speaks of and put them, and it is striking. Actually, more frightening than that, if, if you go to the Tate website, you can see it. They've got a little two-minute trailer for the exhibition. And it doesn't have any of the imagery of fire or anything like that. All it is for two minutes is a woman wandering around on her own underground, some cellars. Oh, there are other people there, but they never speak to her. They just all try and grab her. She's scared of everyone else. And she is profoundly on her own. She goes on like that for two minutes. And that's it. Come and see Apocalypse. Now, I don't know who's put that two minutes together, but in one sense, that may be an equally good picture according to Jesus' words. There's just weeping. I'm alone. Forever. Deeply unsettling. Jesus uses these words to be deeply unsettling for us. Of course, on the other side of the separation, there, are, there is the wheat. So the, um, Jesus says, verse 42, the weeds, they'll be thrown into the fiery furnace, weeping, gnashing of teeth. But, verse 43, then the righteous, those who follow me, they will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. Gather together and shine like the sun. So Jesus would say to the Christians back then, the Christians now, yes, there'll be hardships. Yes, there'll be persecution. Yes, you will suffer at the hands of evil, but you will shine. You will shine like the sun. It's an extraordinary picture, isn't it? Next time we see some sun, 2015, no, or whatever, next time you go on holiday, some summer sun, and uh, you lie in the sun, and you know when you get nice sun, not too hot, not too, you know, just nice, 26 degrees sort of mm, nice sort of sun. And you lie there and you sort of, you feel yourself soaking up well-being. Mm. And uh, it is, it's sort of vitamin B is sort of flourishing all within your D. Oops, D. Um, vitamin D flourishes within you. And you think, oh, this is nice. Oh, I feel myself becoming well again. Well, think this picture. Because Jesus says you will be that. You'll do that. You'll be like the sun, shining, bringing health and well-being. You'll shine like the sun in the kingdom of the Father, says Jesus. It's an extraordinary picture, isn't it, to shine like that? There's an enormous division at the end of history. Now, last comment to make... If you're a Christian or not here today, of course, you, bringing into this parable the rest of biblical truth, 
there are only two sides. There are the wicked and there are the righteous. There are those who belong to Satan, those who belong to God. Technically, in history, all of us are in this category, and only one, only one ever really was a son of God. Jesus was the only one who ever shone brilliantly, perfectly, who obeyed, who aligned himself with his Father. And yet when he died upon the cross, he was the one who was burnt for those who put their faith in him. So later on in the New Testament, I mean, similar sort of language is used. Let me just read you a couple of verses from Hebrews chapter 13, verses 11 and 12. Hebrews 13. In the Old Testament, the priests carried the blood of animals into the most holy place as a sin offering, but the bodies of the animals are burned outside the camp. Just so, Jesus suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his blood. The picture, he was the one who was burned outside, shut out. And of course, that's the teaching of the New Testament. The only way to go from being a weed to being wheat, from one who belongs to Satan to one who belongs to the Father, is by saying, Jesus Christ was burned and excluded for me, so that I never will be. It's the only way to move across. Now, if you've never thrown yourself upon him and said, Jesus, I know, I see now, I need rescuing from hell for heaven. If you've never done that, take advantage of the delay. Jesus has delayed for a time, but he says, I will return and I will separate. If you're not yet calling yourself a Christian, take, adva- if you're uns- take advantage of the delay and say, Jesus, you're the only way for me to go from hell to heaven by trusting that you were burned and excluded for me. For those of us who are Christians, we still need these images of fire, of weeping, of gnashing, of pain, of exclusion, of being shut out. We still need those. So we think, that is what Jesus has suffered for me. I've lived with these verses for for much of this week. It does something to you when you remember that is where I was heading. Humanly speaking, uh, until uh, 1993, that was where I was heading. But Jesus saved me for eternity from exclusion, loneliness, burning, weeping, gnashing, for him to shine. It reminds you that we owe him everything. Everything. And so yes, there'll be periods in this life where we'll say, what is going on? Why is my life so hard? Why am I being given a hard time by him? And it's nothing compared to being in Zimbabwe or nothing compared to being in Korea. But we will say, what is going on? Why not perfection now? Why evil now? And we need to remember, Jesus said, but think of then. Oh, when you're there then, you'll look back upon your moans and your worries here and now and say... They were nothing. You've saved me forever from weeping and gnashing. So wait until then. Get your expectations straight about life in this world. And remember, the separation comes then. Then is when there's no evil. Then is when there's no pain. 
But now it's all be mixed up. But put your faith in him for then, he says. Let's pray together. Our Father, we praise you that the Lord Jesus was burned so that we could shine. We uh, know there are strong words in this parable. We know and thank you again that we need them to shape our thinking rightly. We are too concerned with setting up heaven here on earth. And then disappointment comes. Would we be shaped by your view of the future and live in the light of that day and supremely be those who give thanks to you, praising you, that Jesus was burned so that we might shine for eternity. And we praise him. Amen.